The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. So we've uh, finished up a conversation we've been having about determination over the last few weeks, and starting tonight, we'll move into this next beautiful quality of the heart. Some of you know we've been working through a very well-known list in the Buddhist tradition called the Ten Paramis, beautiful qualities of the heart. So the next one is loving-kindness. And if you want a resource, you can get a hold of Sylvia Borstein's book, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, the Buddhist Path of Kindness. But I thought I'd just check in with folks about the meditation questions you have about practice. Every once in a while, it's good to take a simple look at, like, what do we do when we sit and meditate? Because I'm sure many of you have noticed it's easy to spin our wheels. Like, we go through the motions. We sit down. We you know, set aside the time. But we don't seem to be getting anywhere in our practice. And the thing about the way life works, the mind works, is it operates on this principle that in Buddhism we call karma. When we do something intentionally, it sets something in motion. There are consequences to our intentional actions. So, in our meditation time, we're doing something intentionally, right? We're intentionally being awake. We're intentionally being interested. We're intentionally accepting we're intentionally being fearless. We're intentionally being kind with the different objects of experience experience that are coming and going. We're intentionally discerning the lawful nature of how things unfold, like how the mind gets tight or how the tightness in the mind releases. Right? We're intentionally discerning, understanding cause and effect in terms of the mind. And all of those intentions then have consequences, which we generally generally would call we're waking up or we're becoming wiser, more free. So if that's not happening, then we're not planting the right seeds. We may not we may have intentions, but maybe not those intentions I met I mentioned. Maybe we have the intention just to get through the set. You know, or the intention to look like I'm meditating, <laughs> right? Or the intention not to move, which you might think is a good intention, but it, there are a lot of animals that can sit perfectly still, but that doesn't mean they're wise or kind. Like uh, Ajahn Chah, well-known Thai Buddhist monk, said, chickens know how to sit still. So... What are, what have been our intentions when we've been sitting? And then what are the fruits, the natural consequences of having that kind, those kinds of intentions in the mind? What do we get for that? Or any questions you have about the practice? So let's take a little bit of time and then we'll take the rest of tonight and next Wednesday to look at this beautiful quality of loving kindness as one of the ten paramis. And remember, if you have a question or you want to share a little bit, about how you've been doing your formal sitting meditation practice, point the mic right at your mouth, pretty close, 
and that way everybody will be able to hear you. So what have you been learning or what questions you have about sitting meditation practice? Yeah, Charlie. Hello, my name is Charlie. Um, I've noticed that um, when I when my mind is in sort of a negative state, sometimes that's when I end up having my best sits because it's such a relief to just go be with my breath or with the motion of walking or or what have you. Um, but when I'm already in like a pretty good mood, sometimes it's like my mind already feels good and safe. And so it just sort of keeps meandering around with whatever good, safe thoughts happen to be predominant in my mind. So I'm wondering about um, working with that. Yeah, it's a good question. And they say, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, we talk sometimes about uh, different personality types, somebody who might be a more aversive type or somebody who might be a more greedy type or more of a deluded type. And it's said in the tradition that the angry people tend to get awake, enlightened quick because it's really unpleasant. And it's sort of to your point, Charlie, that when the mind is struggling, like there's some pain in the body or some emotional pain, in a way, the incentives line up just right to relate to the unpleasantness of the body or the unpleasantness of the emotions with wisdom, with non-attachment, because it gets so much worse if we struggle with the pain in the body or we struggle with the emotional pain. So generally speaking, people uh, learn first how to be with difficult experience. And then we have to learn something that's much harder, which is how to be mindful with really pleasant or even relatively neutral experience. It's much harder because what kind of habit energy, when things are really light and pleasant, what kind of habit energy does that trigger in our minds? Something like, no, I don't have to practice because it's already nice. So the practice sort of shuts down. Unless we're really awake, really know what we're doing, when things, when the mind, heart, body starts to feel tranquil, settled, then you might notice the tendency to just let things be. So then the mind, it has some energy because it's feeling pretty good. So why not worry? Why not plan? Why not figure this problem out of my life? I'm feeling pretty good. right? Because when we feel good, all of a sudden, a lot of the things on our to-do list seem like they're workable. So we take them up and we spend the meditation time kind of planning, thinking through things, wondering, fantasizing, because it doesn't occur to the mind that whatever that good feeling is, is just something being known. Right? To continue to that, that intention that I was talking about earlier, the intention to be intimate, not to get confused by the wholesome states, not to get attached, which is sort of what you were, when you said, because if it's really nice, we do get attached. You know, We want it to last. We want it to be even nicer. But before we get to that place, we basically want to indulge. And so we think that if I'm practicing, I won't get to indulge. But actually, what is practice? Practice just means we're acknowledging that 
it's really nice, when it's really nice, we acknowledge it's really nice now. It feels like this, in fact. Right? Because that's what we do when it's unpleasant. We practice being intimate with it. So when it's pleasant, we practice being intimate with it, the way it is. But not intimate in order to own it. We're not trying to own the pleasant experience. We're just trying to understand that it's like this now. And then, of course, understanding that and it will change. The same thing when it's unpleasant. It's like this now and eventually it will change. It will become something else. So here's the thing. After so many times learning that resisting and hating and reacting to physical, emotional, spiritual discomfort, we learn that it doesn't work. We abandon it. And then after many, many times of ignoring or dropping the practice or grasping the pleasant, we realize that doesn't work either. And the only thing that actually works is to be radically present and not attached. And they go hand in hand. You can't really be intimate and attached. The attachment keeps the heart, the mind from being intimate. So you don't even need both of those. You know, We have to be intimate and not attached. You can either say, I'm practicing non-attachment. If anybody asks you, what, why are you doing this? Say, I've tried attachment and it doesn't work. <laughs> right? Or you could use the language of intimacy. I've tried non-intimacy. I've tried being disconnected, having a life but not being there, and it doesn't work. So I'm going to practice being intimate. Or I've practiced being attached and it doesn't work, so I'm going to practice non-attachment. And they're really two sides of the same thing. Non-attachment is intimacy. Intimacy is non-attachment. That's what we're practicing for. And like Charlie suggests, it gets challenging when the mind begins to settle down and we experience more lighter states, happy states, peaceful states, states of contentment. How to sustain an authentic interest, a willingness to be close, a willingness to be undefended, a willingness to let it unfold, that pleasantness, that calmness, to whatever it's going to be next but not to kind of want to control it, make it last, make it bigger, better, or whatever. But just to allow things to take their course, whatever that might be. And some days, in a sit, the practice might blossom into a really deeply peaceful, pleasant state. Right? And other days it won't. But if we try to control, if we trust attachment, Guaranteed, there will be suffering. So that's the non-attachment. But remember, non-attachment means being intimate. You have to be alert. So you have to be interested in order to not be attached. A lot of times we misunderstand non-attachment as being disconnected. But that's not actually possible. Non-attachment means being intimate. How can we be not attached to something we're disconnected to. We have to be radically intimate to actually let it be. It's like, it's really easy to say, I'm not attached to what's going on in Syria. Well, yeah, because I'm not intimate, you know. I don't really want to read those articles when I read the news, and I'm not actually there, and I don't really have any 
connection with the suffering that's going on there. So it's pretty easy for me to say, well, c'est la vie, you know. So if we want to bring healing in our life, the healing comes from connecting, from being intimate, from being vulnerable and exposed. That's real awakening. That's real freedom. Not from being disconnected, pretending things don't matter, pretending it's not about me, but really being open. Other thoughts or questions that have come up in your practice? Yeah, all the way in the back. You want to pass the mic back? All the way in that corner. Sometimes it doesn't work so well in that corner because of all the walls the signal has to go through. So do your best. Hi, my name is Adrian. And um, I... Um, Something's changing in my practice, um, and that feels good because I felt like a, an absolute beginner for so long, and now I feel like, a, you know, uh, I've taken some kind of step that um, it, it feels good. It feels like something's happening. And what's different um, right now is that, and it does feel like I'm not, you know, I'm not there. I haven't gotten it, you know, but uh, I'm uh, really grateful that I can sit and lately I can sit and uh, have um, an unpleasant thought or thoughts or emotions, but I don't feel um, swept away by them as often I can actually, what it feels like is that I'm touching them lightly. And so I'm aware of um, that um, there's a separateness between, you know, or a space between me and the, you know, things that would normally or have kind of swept me away. Yeah. Um, and so that feels like progress yeah. to me. Um, and I don't know, it feels like a little jerky, it feels, but it, it also feels like a light touch. And that, that, that's the best way I can describe it right now, and that feels like progress to me. Yeah, we call that insight. So some of you know Theravada Buddhism, when it came here to the West, we often call it insight meditation or vipassana meditation. Vipassana just means insight. And it's just out of the teachings of the Buddha, and the Theravada tradition really emphasizes the historic teachings of the Buddha or the teachings of the historic Buddha, I guess you should say. And it's all about insight. And one way to talk about insight is how you did, which is you called it like there's some distance. And I, it's a, not a bad way to describe it, but uh, one way they talk about it in the Thai force tradition is there's the activity like in your case and how you described it, the activity of your thinking mind, a thought and maybe a charge, an emotional charge that comes with the thought, and the knowing of it. And so the thing is the knowing of the thought, that knowing's not really distant from the thought that's being known, but it has the appearance of some space. But what we would call, what we'd say in Buddhism is there's a space of wisdom. It's not an actual distance, but it's right to call it a kind of space because there's the activity that's being known and there's the knowing of it. And to understand that, like 
directly means the mind isn't getting swept away, as you said, isn't getting pushed around by the emotion, by the content that is being known. So even though intellectually it doesn't seem like it should work, you have to check it out. And so one way to check it out in daily life and in your formal meditation practice is to even use the language at times so that eventually you don't need the language. Something like, oh, this is being known. This feeling, this emotional feeling is being felt. This thought is being known. These sensations are being known. This pain is being known. And really emphasize, because it's not the habit of the mind, the part that is is being known. More than what is being known, but that it is being known, that it's just something being known here. And you'll see that it really brings in the space of wisdom, or the space, the quality of equanimity. And it's precisely because the mind is intimate. It's intimate enough. The wisdom, the awareness is there enough to see that it's always something being known. No matter how complicated our world seems, it's just this being known. Like right now, it seems like we have a complicated life, but right now, what is actually in your subjective experience as a human being, what is it? It's just this experience that you're experiencing and it's being known. It's really simple. And then, of course, whatever that is that's being known, it's falling away because there's another moment of experience that's being known. And then it's immediately falling away so that another moment which is known. So it has this, when you really study your actual present moment subjective experience, it's very light and ephemeral. There's really, we lose the reasons to be tight to be reactive, to be hateful. And what's left is a beautiful intimacy which has the flavor of love or kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. And that's really kind of the end of these parmes. It's really about those qualities of the heart. Loving kindness and equanimity are the last two of these ten qualities. Because that's the flavor of the mind when it's present with wisdom. It has this equanimity. Thanks. Did you say Adrian? Yeah. Yeah, thanks Adrian for sharing that. Other thoughts about your practice you'd like to share with the group or questions? Thoughts about what you've been learning? Yeah, Margaret, you want to pass it all the way over? But it's nice. And it also for anybody wearing the hearing assist uh, the assisted hearing uh, the mic goes right to their earphones. Yeah. Well, it is a crutch. And it's like medicine, you know. We want to use medicine when we have a reason to use it. And then when we don't have a reason to use it, we want to let it go. And one of the things, it's the same about sitting with a group as opposed to sitting all alone. You might find it easier to, you know, do the 35-minute sit we do on Wednesday nights in group than it would be to sit at home. But we have to remember that just because a meditation period is more active, the mind is more active, the body's more restless, or there's more negativity arising, 
doesn't mean we're learning less, right? We might actually learn more without the guided meditation, but there may not be as much calm because we can get a little bit of a tangential uh, or a, a transmission from the teacher. If the teacher's voice or the teacher's presence or where the teacher is coming from is really settled, then as living beings, we have this capacity to sympathetically vibrate with others, right? So if we're around a lot of angry people, we tend to get agitated. If we're with somebody who seems to be in a pretty settled place, giving instructions about being in a really settled place, it's relatively easy to go in that place. So, you know, the answer, the simple answer is, well, do both. Sometimes use guided meditations if you're finding it useful, if it's good medicine. But don't assume because the mind is more active or the meditation seems less calm that you're learning less. And the the direction we're going in our practice is the direction of self-reliance. One of the interesting things you see when you read the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha that have been recorded, um, one of the things you see the Buddha saying from time to time when somebody would ask like, about this practitioner, and the Buddha would say, well, this practitioner, that practitioner rather, is independent in her practice, meaning that she has come to, she's heard the teachings enough, you know, has gotten enough guided meditations or instructions that her own wisdom is now her teacher. So she's independent. She doesn't require outside teachings. It doesn't mean that they're bad or that she wouldn't for, from time to time hear teachings, but that there is an independence. So that's where we want to go have enough confidence that we understand the basic principles like the reality of non-attachment as good and the reality of attachment as unwholesome, the cause for stress. Right Now, you can immediately memorize that and you're on your way, but to know, to have some direct experience that attachment always causes stress and non-attachment always supports the release of the mind and heart. To have that in your bones to some degree, that's in the direction of independence and self-reliance. So you can get that to some degree from guided meditations, but you learn more when you're on your own. You know, and you just got that 30 minutes or 60 minutes in front of you, and the mind goes to hell, and then it gets out of hell. You know, and it goes to heaven, and then it loses it. And that happens, you know, 30, 40 times in one sit, one hour sit. And you learn a lot in that movement in and out of hell, in and out of heaven, in and out of pleasant and unpleasant states, right? You learn a lot. What do we learn a lot about? The lawfulness. Things happen due to causes and conditions. It's not random. And if those causes and conditions can be seen clearly, discerned as they actually are, then the mind, the heart gains some mastery. We're not just fumbling around. I mean, this is the amazing thing. We have a mind that how many of us have put some real time into understanding how the mind works, as opposed to putting some real time into understanding how our cell phone works. Or... You know, any of our electronic devices, 
the time we put in. Or people who are like, I haven't really, I was, I'm a little too old for some of the video games. When I was young, it was like Pac-Man. So <laughs> they weren't that interesting. But like some of you, the current games, some of the younger people in the room, you know, it's probably you've spent a lot of time mastering a particular video game. To what end? <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying they're not entertaining. I'm assuming that they are. Certainly addicting. But the mind is certainly much more interesting and the consequences to getting to know the mind, the heart, and mastering it. Mastering it not by physical control. It's not like a beast that we sort of wrestle to the ground. But just it's a, it's a very predictable, lawful process natural process the mind it can be understood but we have to become a student and the thing is as human beings one of our biggest habit is <clears throat> we don't like things that are subtle because we have to pay attention we like things that are really gross because we don't have to have a refined attention right we can just like watching football or sports you know it's a pretty gross activity or you know, The Bachelor or TV, reality TV, you know, it's like easier to read it. But the mind requires, to study the mind, we have to first and foremost really settle down. Because it's a subtle thing, we need a lot of calm, a lot of settledness, a lot of peace in order to study it. So very few people are willing to do the training to settle down, to really study the mind. But I tell you, it's the most interesting thing and it has the biggest payoff in terms of freedom and love and skill in life if we do the work to study the mind. Thanks, Margaret. Other thoughts that come to mind? What have you been learning? What questions do you have about practice? It's really a good time to share from your practice and share your questions because other people really benefit. And it normalizes the practice for people to hear other people talk about what goes on in their mind, what they're learning, what's been challenging, what's felt good. My name is Don, and uh, we started off talking about uh, karma, intentions. And uh, I have such a hard time at when I... Uh, have uh, intentions uh, are are bad, are going down that route. It's hard to, you know, pol- things proliferate. You know, my mind just takes off, and it's so hard to uh, reel it back in and get back. Um, do you just so is it just a time thing, and just going oh it's like this now and, but I find it so hard to um, get back in that place of just calming down and it just wants to just and to the point where i want to kind of throw throw in the towel and go okay so this this brings us right back to what we talked about earlier and i totally get it's really hard to trust in non-attachment but the thing about the path is it's about non-attachment in the beginning the middle and the end so When our mind is out of control, like Don suggests, which happens to all of us, even people who have been practicing for a long time, I've been really committed almost every single day 
with just a few exceptions for since 1982, so over 30 years. And my mind gets out of control, right? But what I've learned when my mind is out of control, racing, struggling, reacting, I don't try to reel it in, right? Because now my mind has learned there's only one move, really, and that move is to see things as they are. So I see the mind out of control. That's my job, not to reel it in, but to know that when the mind is out of control, it's like this. It feels like this. Because there's one thing I can do when my mind is out of control. I can correlate mind out of control with the suffering that goes with it. Right? That's really a good thing to see. That's an insight. Oh, when I'm raging, when I'm lusting, when I'm obsessing, it hurts like this. It's like what we do with kids. Like, uh, you know, one of the kids did something they weren't supposed to do, and a wise parent would say, well, what are the, you know, the wise parent would help the child see the natural consequences. Oh, you took Johnny's toy, yeah? And how did that work for you, you know? Well, he got really angry and he hit me. Okay, and how did that feel? Well, it didn't feel good, you know. And so, so, so tell me again what happened. Well, I took his toy and then I got hit and I and then, and then it dawns on the, the person's mind, the little kid's mind. Oh yeah, that's how it works. So we can do the same thing. So part of what we learn is not to be afraid of suffering, but to let it be a teacher. And the same thing with joy and all the like Charlie was pointing to the more beautiful parts of practice where the mind feels really calm, really peaceful, really joyful, really expansive, then instead of indulging in those beautiful states, we correlate, oh yeah, this happened because of that. When there's this, there's that. So we really learn where that's what wisdom is always doing. It's always understanding things in terms of cause and effect. Oh, they're suffering. Why is there suffering? Because the mind is taking things really personally. It's really attached. It thinks it needs to control things. And then that makes things really unpleasant. Okay. I may not have a pleasant state, but there's understanding. And understanding is liberating. Understanding how the mind, how the heart got to hell is liberating. It's not nice to be in hell, but if you're going to be in hell, the best thing you can do is know how you got there. Right, And that, there's some real liberation because then as soon as you know how you got there, the mind remembers it doesn't have to be this way. It is this way now, but right now I'm no longer feeding the causes that got me here. So it's just a matter of time before this becomes something else. right? Because it understands that whatever this health situation is, hellish situation is, it's a conditional arising. It takes supporting causes to be in hell. And now I understand those supporting causes and I'm not feeding them, so it will dissipate, it will evaporate. It may take a while, because sometimes when we're in a really contracted state, it's like really in the body. So even though the mind might stop obsessing, physically, emotionally, there may be some momentum. So we practice patience in those times. Patiently not adding the supporting causes for this hell, right? not going back there, because we now know when there's that, 
there's hell. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to refrain from doing that. Yeah, thanks, Don, for sharing that. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah, please. Hi, uh, my name is Ben. Um, so I'm not sure if this is exactly directly related, to, but uh, when you were talking about um, sort of appreciating subtle things, um, it kind of struck a chord with me because uh, I've noticed that when I'm uh, being particularly good about my meditation practice and uh, you know, c- committing myself to it. Um, I've noticed that I enjoy music more and I sort of just enjoy art more. And I think part of the reason, uh, is because, you know, I guess appreciation for art is sort of predicated on an appreciation for kind of subtler things and reading into things a little bit more. Um, and I've just noticed that I've, I've kind of unknowingly um, cultivated this appreciation for the subtle um, when I'm when I've been meditating a lot. So I, I guess it's just something that I noticed and something that sort of came to mind when you mentioned uh, subtlety and yeah. noticing things like that. Yeah, it's a really really important point, and and it's also it's an important point because it draws us in. It's interesting though that. Subtlety, that sensitivity to what's subtle that Ben was talking about, it's on the one hand really beautiful, and on the other hand that increasing sensitivity to what's subtle is really hard to bear because we just start feeling and seeing more. Like I wonder if when you're around a bunch of people and they're in a negative place, whether you find that you're also really sensitive to that and in the same way that you might be really sensitive to music, really sensitive to nature, to art, that we're really sensitive to negative things too. Because here's the interesting thing about the, the part of practice that's about stabilizing the mind so that there's more concentration, more sensitivity, more steadiness. This is what we mean by the word samadhi. And that samadhi, it's like not so easy to turn on and off. You have a good sit, and the mind really settles down. And then you go to the breakfast table, and your spouse is there, and she or he you know, might be projecting something on you, but now you're really sensitive to it. Or they're just not there. They're sort of lost in their thoughts, and you're really sensitive to that. Or you know, you, your pants are too tight, and you're really sensitive to that. <laughs> So it's like everything feels that the news, the, the harshness of the news can be overwhelming. So things can be a little hard to bear with that sensitivity. But the, don't, the sensitivity is good. There's nothing wrong with feeling overly exposed. It's just that wisdom hasn't caught up to the sensitivity. So the plus side of sensitivity is all the interesting and beautiful things in life will seem more interesting and beautiful. The downside is all of the meanness and roughness of life will seem overwhelming. But we need that because it creates this incentive. How can I be this intimate, this clear, this connected, 
without suffering. So this is like uh, some of you I know are quite involved in social justice work, like anti-racism work or work with uh, dealing with some of the inequities in our culture and our society. And it's the same thing. It's like once we start paying attention to how these systemic forces operate in our culture and how there are real people who are suffering, some here in town, of course, but throughout the world, that when we consume certain things or we live certain ways or we are in denial in certain ways, it perpetuates very real suffering. And this is true with humans. It's also true with how we treat other animals on the planet. And all of a sudden we go, I don't really want to be that sensitive. I've opened too many doors. I think I'd rather be a little not so sensitive, not so awake, not so honest about the different reverberations of suffering in and around me. But the the thing about this path is there's no going back. Because once we get a taste for more clarity, more sensitivity, more subtlety, even though it's hard to bear, it's like nobody consciously chooses to be numb or disconnected. We do it out of habit a lot to be distracted, to be disconnected, to be in denial. But you wouldn't consciously, with a clear mind, decide, you know what, I just don't want to be present. So I'm going to drink too much, or I'm going to eat too much, or I'm going to you know, get lost in media, or whatever you do to disconnect. We do those things when we're not really paying attention. You know, overdrink, overeat, close off in different ways. But nobody does it consciously because it's really unpleasant to be disconnected. I mean, all we have is our life, and to choose to not be there is literally insane, right? But we do it unconsciously. So when you cultivate sensitivity, then you want to appreciate it even when it's really hard to bear, and you want to understand how wisdom allows you to maintain the sensitivity without getting tight. Wisdom is the only thing that allows us to be a very sensitive being. And wisdom is the reality of non-grasping. So where we're really intimate, we're really connecting, we're really showing up, we're engaged, we feel mutually responsible for everything, but we're not attached. And I know that sounds like a paradox. Like, How can we feel mutually responsible? How can we engage and respond without attachment. Well, you can give it a word. You can call it love. right? Isn't, doesn't love allow us to respond, to show up fearlessly? But it's not about, love is not about trying to get something. We respond because we care, because we can, because it's a beautiful thing to do, to respond, to act skillfully in the world. So I I wanted to take this opportunity from Ben's comment about the growing subtlety and sensitivity to mention, just so that you're not surprised, when when things start to feel more overwhelming, like maybe you used to go home and see your parents and it was fine, and then after a couple years of practice, it's really hard to be with some of your family members, right? Or it's really hard to listen to the news, or it's really hard to any number of things. 
ride the train, yeah, be in the bus or whatever it is. Because all of a sudden it's like you have radar for suffering. You're suffering and the world's suffering. And how, but wisdom is what allows the heart to be close to suffering. Ignorance is what convinces us to close down in the face of suffering. But closing down in the face of suffering is the cause for suffering. All the suffering, all the injustice we see in the world, it arises because people have assumed that closing down in the face of suffering works. But it doesn't work. It just allows us to do really mean things to each other because we've closed down. So staying open in the face of suffering is what allows what we could call a compassionate, wise response. Yeah, thanks, Ben, for bringing that up. Who'd like to go next? Other thoughts? Yeah, please. I'm going to pass it behind you. Right behind you. Um, I find that I'm a little bit maybe addicted to... Like, I'll be in situations in my life where I'm attached and getting emotional. And I think, well, when I go home at night, at the end of the day, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to, this is not going to be such a big deal. And I kind of am looking forward to this, that incident at the moment being less charged in the future, but I'm not able to do that in the moment. Yeah. But what you are able to do in the moment is you're beginning to discern that roller coaster where you, the mind, because of the force of habit, lets itself get all worked up, pushed around, agitated, and then we have to go take our medicine. We have to meditate, we have to take a hot bath, we have to do some calming exercise, you know, we need body work, we need a, you know, and all the bad things we do, overeat, watch TV, anything to help put down the load from the day. And you're starting to notice that that's ho- that whole cycle is exhausting. You know, it's like we dig a hole and then we fill it up. Or we clean up the room and then we mess it up. And then we clean it and then we mess it. Why don't we just stop messing it up? Right? So the whole point of formal meditation practice is not to have to do it forever, but to start doing it all day long. So initially in practice, there's a real distinction between our formal practice or going on a Buddhist meditation retreat and everything else, daily life. But hopefully, the more you practice, the more it's seamless. So what you're doing in your formal practice, you start seeing the mind or the heart doing in daily life. So there you are. Things arise in daily life just like they do when you're sitting. So can you just see, well, that's just something being known. So somebody's insulting you. Well, that's just something being known. So maybe it's just like the words. That's just some words being known. Or maybe it's too late. You already have the reaction. Well, that's just the emotion being felt. Or maybe the emotion you've seen is really unpleasant. Well, that's just unpleasantness being known. So wherever you are in that moment, can you break it down into its simple reality? Something is being known. And that's something, if you can... You turn toward what's predominant. So the thing, often it's what you don't want to acknowledge. This is just something being known. It's just this experience, this feeling, 
this sight, this thought, this sensation being known? Or can that be okay? In other words, is it safe actually to be soft and undefended in this moment? And have an open mind, like, I don't know, but is it? Well, let's experiment a little bit. Let's just soften a little, sink a little bit more into the moment and see what my response then is in the situation. Because it might be more skillful the more we're able to let in and to relax with those challenging moments of our day. Yeah, so it will carry over. And then one little trick is save the last five or ten minutes of your sit, open your eyes, and drop your formal anchor. So like a lot of people work with their breath as a training ground for the continuity of awareness, like using the breath to practice non-attachment, letting the breath come in but don't control it, letting the breath go out, or feeling the whole body as you breathe in, feeling the whole body as you breathe out. But then for the last five or ten minutes, open the eyes, let go of the technique, and just be with what comes and goes in the mind. So we call this open attention practice. Instead of a directed meditation where you're directing your attention to a chosen meditation object, now you're intentionally not directing your attention. You're just letting whatever phenomena, thoughts, sounds, sights, whatever, whatever shows up, shows up, and it's just something being known, something being known. You might start worrying about the day in front of you or something that happened yesterday, like we do in regular sitting. But now you don't have a defense like go back to the breath. So you just, okay, well, that's just a thought being known. And if there's an emotion that goes with it, well, there's that emotion and it's being known. Can that be okay? So how not to suffer when the mind does what the mind does, when the body does. And then you do that for five or ten minutes and then you start to move and you go eat your breakfast or get to work and you just continue it. So that you're trying to break down some of the boundaries between the formal meditation practice and daily life practice. Yeah. And you can even ask yourself, what is freedom? What does non-attachment look like in this moment? Like maybe you're a little agitated about getting home right now as we get close to nine. And so just, it would be interesting just to explore, well, what is non-attachment? So instead of thinking, oh, I shouldn't feel this way, the fact is you do feel the way you're feeling. So what does non-attachment or intimacy look like with what you're experiencing now? Yeah, we have a few minutes left. Hi, my name's Anna. Um, my question is about schedule and formal practice. Yeah, point it right at your mouth. Like this? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I'm working with both a formal practice and my practice going in and out throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And traditionally in the past, I've been pretty strict on the times of day I practice and how long. And then I've tried to ease up on some of that because I think sometimes that's not good for me. So I ease up, but I've swung sometimes in the opposite direction of completely letting go of times and structure. And so I'm curious as when and how much of a formal structure to have. Yeah, but a lot of understanding the practice in terms of what's good medicine for us, it's really personal. And it's not just personal to you generally, but even month by month, 
you have to sort of attune. And so you can, a little experimentation is good. And it doesn't have to be perfect. And then just make the adjustments without expecting perfection. Like it might feel a little tight, but that might be better than not having a formal structure and just letting things happen. Another thing people have done in the past is they might have, like just, I sit an hour a day. That's just what I do. And then, but maybe one day you leave it open. Honey, you just sit, but you just sit for as long as you want. You know, so you settle in. You have to at least settle in, however long that takes, five or ten minutes. But then no strings attached. And it's like when my eyes open up, then I'll end the sit or something like that. Or I'll just see when I end the sit. And I won't have a clock around. I'll just see. It's really nice to kind of do that sort of experimentation. And then another thing that your comment reminded me of, for those of you who are more serious about your practice, then periodically, maybe even once a month, set aside a Saturday morning or depending on your work schedule, life schedule, but put aside a half day and uh, just make that a mindfulness time, a practice time, but don't tell yourself how you're going to use it. I'm going to sit and then I'm going to do some walking practice and then I'm going to study, you know, and you kind of like structure it. No, no. You just have this four-hour period or this six-hour period and you can do whatever you want but it's mindfulness practice. It's awareness practice. And if you want to sit and formally meditate, great. If you want to take a walk, great. If you want to do a cleaning project, great. But everything you do is the practice of awareness and the practice of non-attachment. Right? So you're noticing the attachment and the causes for it, and you're noticing the non-attachment and the causes for that and appreciating that. So there's, a lot of, there's really a lot of room for creativity. And the same thing when you look at the schedule of Common Ground now. I mean, there's just all kinds of programs. And you should just think of you know, the array of programs and the small community groups as like different medicine. And so the question is, well, what kind of medicine would support the awakening, the, the growing of wisdom, the growing of compassion in my life? And you're going to have to experiment because you won't know until you try it out. And then look at the effects. What is the effect of having done it this way for a while? Like when you're being more rigid. What effects, positive, negative effects do you have? And when you're being more loose, what are the positive and negative effects? So we're checking in from time to time. And just generally, when you end your sit, you should do exactly that. Not just how was that, but how did I practice and what did that set in motion? What fruits are the result of how the mind practiced? So you're kind of connecting the dots. Thanks, Anna. Maybe time for just one more comment. Anybody have a last? Yeah, all the way in the back there. One second, we'll get the mic to you. Just keep all the way by the chairs there. Hi, um, I'm Gigi. This is the first time I'm here, but I have done um, practice in Thailand, where I'm from. And last time was um, three years ago, so it's been a long time. But what I have observed myself, um, what was happening to me before was I'm really more uptight person. But now I learn to let things go, and I 
have less emotional fluctuation. So when I'm happy, I'm happy for a few seconds, and then I'm like, okay, stable. When I'm sad, I'm sad for a few seconds, and then I'm back to where I was. And it's actually really helping in every situation of my life, like in work, and you know, like when I break up for many times, and then I don't get sad for so long. So that's really helping. Um, and I have a lot of expectation with myself, and I get frustrated a lot. And but I learned that I is it is the way it is, and I sometimes I can't change it, or sometimes you know just let it go, and everything would be just fine. So that's where I am. Yeah, that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much for sharing, and that equanimity. The Buddha calls the highest kind of happiness, not the ecstasy of joy, but the the real depth of peace, that peace of equanimity, the peace of letting the world in this moment be because it's already this way. So don't confuse equanimity that she was talking about with a, a not caring. It's not the same of not caring. It's a deep understanding that right now it is this way, right? So for me, like if I don't like what's going on right now, is it functional for me to get tight because it's this way now? Like just as an example, there's global warming. So should we be tight because there's global warming or that we're in an ecological crisis? No, because the tightness is just suffering. If there's something to do, we should do it about any cause for suffering, right? If there's nothing to do, then there's nothing to do. But there's never a reason to not go back to that equanimity, that even, that place of peace. We might, but when we do, we'll see that it's not helping. And that's what wisdom does. That's what the practice does is it realizes that being peaceful allows us to be intimate, allows us to skillfully respond, to do what can be done. But when there's nothing to do, it's okay. When there's something to do, it's okay. We'll do it. But we don't have to suffer. So the practice removes the suffering. It doesn't make the world a different place. The world still may be messy. But with the practice, we're going to be able to be more intimate, more engaged, not thrown around by the ups and downs. So let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds to let go of the words. <clears throat> so nice to appreciate everybody's sharings. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org